Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. So on our new website at expatmoney.com, I have put out a special report on getting a plan B residency and instant citizenships. I think that this is really important stuff and I want to get this into your hands straight away. You can grab it for free if you go to expatmoney.com and you'll see it right at the very top. All you need to do is just put in your name and email address. You're going to be able to access it instantly. There's no cost for it. I'm not selling anything. I just want you to get this information. You're going to be able to join my newsletter. You're going to be able to stay up to date with all all of the important work that we're doing at Expat Money. And yeah, it's going to be amazing. So go to expatmoney.com, grab the special report on getting a plan B residency or instant citizenship and enjoy, read it. It's important stuff. I think you're really going to like it. Okay, let's get into the interview. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is a serial entrepreneur who runs Time Doctor and Staff.com, one of the most popular time tracking and productivity software platforms in use by top brands today. He is also co-organizer of the world's largest remote work conference, Running Remote. Please welcome to the show, Liam Martin. Liam, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. I just actually finished our conference about a week ago, and uh, all of the cortisol has finally worked itself out of my system. So I'm now feeling a lot more relaxed than I did. I don't know if you've ever run a conference during COVID, but we had six speakers that ended up canceling because they tested positive about 48 hours beforehand. And I got to tell you, it is a interesting animal trying to get a journalist as an example on 24 hours notice that's worthy enough to speak to Harry, who's the CIO of Zoom. It's a very, very difficult process, but I got through it with hopefully all of my brain cells intact. And I'm really excited to be able to talk to you today. Yes, absolutely. We've been going back and forth for like a couple of months now to get this interview. And you've been so flat out with the conference that's been going on. So I'm glad to hear that it has happened and it sounds like a success. And I want to get into kind of some of the details on how you ran it and and what was talked about during that. But why don't we start by kind of talking a little bit about your backstory? How did you get into remote work? How did you decide that this was what you wanted to do as an entrepreneur? Sure. So as you said before, my name is Liam Martin. I live on planet Earth. More specifically, I'm actually in Montreal, Canada, which I didn't know this even when we did the pre-call. You're actually Canadian as well, which is very, very cool. And remote work really started for me in grad school. So I was at McGill University, which was the best university that I could afford. 
And I ended up actually teaching my very first class at McGill. And for those of you that don't know, if you're a graduate student, generally you're the person that's actually teaching the first and second year classes, not actually any instructors or professors. Started the class with 300 students, ended up with less than 200, and the worst academic reviews in the history of the department. The department had been running for about 136 years, so not very good. I remember going into my supervisor's office and saying, I don't think I'm very good at this. And he said, no, you are not. (laughs) And then I said, so what do you think I should do? And he said, well, you got to get pretty good at this teaching thing if you want to actually enter academia and either get better at that or figure something else out to do. Six weeks later, I threw a master's thesis under his door and I was out into the real world. And what I ended up doing actually was building a online tutoring business. And this was back in like 2007. And so I was doing it through Skype. For those of you that have been working remotely long enough, you probably remember that. It worked about 80% of the time. And I would do video calls for students because I recognized that I could actually get twice as many students in in charge the same amount of money. That expanded out to a couple dozen tutors throughout North America and Europe. That actually led to another business, which was Time Doctor, which is a time tracking tool for remote teams with my now co-founder, Rob Rawson. And the problem that I had was I couldn't actually account for the amount of hours that were being worked by one of my employees. So a student would come in and say, hey, you billed me for 10 hours. I only work with a student for five or the tutor for five. I'd end up having to refund the student the five hours and then pay the tutor the full 10 hours. This was really destroying the business. So Time Doctor perfectly solved that problem for me. And then we ended up building up a couple other products, staff.com, running remote, and actually now this book that I've spent the last year and a half working on, which I'm really excited to talk to you about. Okay. Do you want to get into the book first? Do you want to get into the conference first? I mean, I also want to know how you got the domain name staff.com because that is top real estate. Like what year did you buy that in? Well, we used something that is a classic. It's called money. And it unfortunately cost us a lot of it. It cost about a 550 grand. And that was back in 2011. When money was still worth something. <laughs> I yeah, remember exactly. those days. <laughs> right. Yes, everyone's portfolios. This is like May 27th for us right now. So our portfolios are probably all bleeding at this point. But yes, we ended up going after that. We actually initially bought mystaff.com and we bought it because we wanted to build a two sided marketplace for remote workers. So there were a couple platforms that probably some of your listeners know about. Upwork is the biggest one in the space right now, Fiverr, but they actually all merged. They were other companies back in 2011. And we said to ourselves, man, you know, we should really be able to get into the space because we actually had a lot of interest from other companies, other two-sided marketplaces to be able to buy our technology and implement it inside of their own platforms. So we decided to build our own platform. We initially bought my staff because we were kind of negotiating with this domainer. And then we realized, yeah, we've just got to go hog wild on this one. And the actual main company, Time Doctor, was going quite well. That product was doing very well. So we made the investment. And the moment we made the investment, I ran an experiment. It reinforced my confidence in buying the domain because I cold emailed 100 people from timedoctor.com and I cold emailed another 100 people from staff.com and looked at the response rate and the response rate was double for staff.com versus time doctor. So it really does show that when you have a top tier domain, people at least open up that 
email much more often than if you were from xyzzigazaga.com. After six years of going back and forth, I was able to acquire expatmoney.com. It was owned by some company in Dubai, and I've been trying to get it from the very beginning. And I had gone with Expat Money Show at first because we started as a podcast six, seven years ago, but finally picked that up at the beginning of this year. And that cost me a solid five figures. And I didn't have to think about it at all. It was just a, it's available. All right, fine. Let's get it. And then let's just go. Yeah. One of our biggest fears was at that point, would we be replaced by the app ecosystem? Because in 2011, we thought to ourselves, okay, well, the value of a URL versus an application, maybe we would build staff.com as the app, right? Or it would just be called staff. And it hasn't actually ended up going that direction. The amount of people that still type in URLs to go into websites has not necessarily wavered that much. So I think it's absolutely like it's real estate, right? Expat money show versus expat money. As much as you can shorten that URL, the more effective you're going to be in the market. I had another buddy of mine that actually ended up having a .io and I ran a little study for him with some paid advertising showing that when people were exposed to his brand with the .io, 30% of them were typing in the .com. Yeah, I believe that for sure. Because even when I decided that I was going to redo my website, redo my business and the brand and everything like that, I picked up a .io, expatmoney.io. And I think I was doing interviews and things like that. And I had to keep telling people it's expatmoney.io, not .com. People still make the mistake. So now I own the .com and I'm very happy. There's been all this talk over the years of different type of, I don't even know the technical term for it, but different endings for the emails and the web addresses and so many different options that are out there and they're going to replace .com. I don't think so. I mean, after 10 years of doing this, I just don't think that's going to be the case whatsoever. There will definitely be more. Yeah. But it's like, do you want to live in the nice part of town or do you want to live in the ghetto? The dot com's a nice part of town. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone still remembers that. And, you know, it's just like I purchased a property here in Montreal, Canada, that's in a place called the Plateau, which is a very high end part of town. And I could have bought a 10 bedroom house in the suburbs for the price that I paid for a four bedroom house here. But I realized, well, you know what? It's a nice part of town. And when there's going to be an economic correction, the suburbs are going to drop much more than the top. And this is this is like, you look at any city, you always want to be able to purchase in the place that will have the most defendability in terms of you know unit economics. And .com, that's where it's at. As short of a URL as you can possibly get, and the .com, hold it for 25 years. The other thing that's interesting is we've looked at that domain again, and we've had a couple assessments of it. And it's now worth probably about 1.5 million based off the assessments that we've done. So just holding it for like 13 years, we've gone from 500 and something thousand to 1.5 million. That's a pretty good return on investment. No doubt. Well, that's a fun little tangent because I do think that domaining is interesting, especially as business owners. But let's get into some more of the meat. So, all right, let's start with the book because you did mention it. it is something that you want to talk about. And you said you put a ton of work into it. So what is the topic of the book? Is it remote work? No. Oh. It's the only book that's not about remote work. I love this conversation. And here's the issue. Okay. So I was showing you a book that I'm not even going to, sh- I'm going to, I, I complimented the cover yes, and you're was, like, it no, was it a nice sucks. cover. Yeah, I'm holding this book up right now. Okay. I have gotten, I get about 20 books a quarter that come in about remote work. Sure. 
And they all have the same general answers to these questions. Should you use Zoom or should you use Google Meet? Should you use Slack or should you use Microsoft Teams? And my response when people ask me that question, which I get every single day of my life for the last two and a half years, unfortunately. So Liam, which software should we use? Should we use Zoom or should... Yeah, no, <laughs> so if you're asking that question, you don't actually understand the problem that you're trying to solve. And that's what this book is about. So what we've recognized is I've run this conference called Running Remote. And it is, as you had said, the largest conference on remote work. We've been doing it for almost five years now. And I've been able to interact with what we call remote first founders, people that built their companies remote from the get-go. And I think this absolutely has a fantastic amount of overlap with your audience, because I'm sure probably the vast majority of them are doing some type of business and they're probably operating remotely. And the one single thing that they all had in common was what we're calling asynchronous management, which is the capability to be able to manage a business without directly interacting with any of the people inside of that business. Okay, before you go on, when you say not directly interacting, are you specifically just referring to video calls like we're talking today? Or are you talking about like even chat apps like Telegram or WhatsApp or those types of things or Slack or forums? How far down the rabbit hole does this go? So I can give you an example. One of my friends, Amir, who runs a company called Todoist, and it's a task management app that's used by millions of people all over planet Earth. He was telling me a story that's in the book about how he had a engineer that worked inside of the company for six years. He never spoke to him. He never met him in person. He never did a video call with him. He never did an audio call with him. The farthest that he got was chatting on Slack, but that was the farthest that they've got. And they actually thought at one point, maybe he's a bot. Maybe he's an AI <laughs> that's been built. But at the end of the day, does Amir really care whether it's a bot? They got the work done. So that's basically what I'm talking about is there's a basic philosophical layer that most remote asynchronous founders talk about, which is a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport. Read it like 12 and times. Amazing book. Fantastic book, right? And basically, deep work is the capability to be able to have everything at your disposal in order to be able to accomplish work right? To be able to accomplish a hard problem or succeed at solving a hard problem. Companies work exactly the same way. So asynchronous organizations or what we're calling asynchronous management, the methodology of managing these individuals, allows for everyone inside of that organization to optimize themselves towards a state of deep work so that they can solve those problems much faster and more effectively than people that are inside of an office, what I like to call distraction factories. The ability for everyone to be able to have everything at their disposal to be able to solve those really difficult problems is really what differentiates asynchronous teams from in-office teams. And this is the part that I find so exciting because in our study of these asynchronous organizations, we found that on average, their managerial layer is about 50% thinner than their on-premise counterparts because the actual platform is the system that manages everyone, not necessarily individuals. And this is the cool, sexy thing that I've been trying to tell people about since the pandemic started when everyone ended up moving remote. I mean, we had 4% of the US workforce working remotely in February of 2020. By March, that was 
That's the biggest transition in work since the Industrial Revolution. And no one decided to think, maybe we should manage these people a little bit differently. But no, they're using exactly the same methodologies that they've used before. There is a different way to be able to do it. I know it because I was interacting with these people for the past 20 years. And that's what the book is about, trying to get that information into people's hands. I think this is super interesting because we've probably done, well, probably about five or six episodes last year on remote work and probably 15 or 20 episodes on remote work over the lifespan of the six or so plus years of the podcast. We've even done mashup episodes, the best of remote work, but we've never discussed this before. Everything that we've discussed has really been about the mindset, about the person moving overseas, what it looks like to be on the work side of it, opposed to the founder and the management side on how to run the team remote. So I think this is super interesting to dig into. Why do you think that that is? So I'm trying to actually figure out the solution to that problem too, because so many people, as I said before, it's about the tools that you're using. It's about the lifestyle that you're going to gain. And these are all the very important things. But the problem is that if you are in Playa del Carmen in Mexico, living fantastic lifestyle, living by the beach, but you have to be on Zoom nine hours a day, does it matter where you're located? Probably not, right? For me, I spend about an hour in what I like to call synchronous forms of communication with my team, with the organization that I manage. And then outside of that, you know, I focus on deep work. I focus on doing things like this, which is leveraging my time and really figuring out what am I good at? What can I do that other people cannot do? And focusing solely on executing on that. Mm -hmm. See, my business has always been remote, right? From day one has been remote. My solution as we've scaled, I think I've got eight or nine full-time employees right now that help me. My solution was just to hire a project manager. And then I come up with crazy ideas and I'm like, here, you deal with this. Like you just just ram it through and just make it happen. I read Traction and loved that book on the management style that they did. So studied pretty much everything that they've put out on that. And that was kind of my idea is I'm the innovator. I have the creative ideas and I need the implementer. And my implementer, he just pushes everything through and he's remote. I'm remote. He's down in Brazil. I'm in Panama. All my people are in, I think, yeah, eight, nine people in probably five different countries, but we still take Zoom calls. We still have a chat that we're using on Telegram every single day, a hundred times a day, and still using emails going back and forth. So what are some of the like the switches to make things more asynchronous? So they're not waiting on me. I'm not waiting on them. What's the way to kind of like rev that up or leverage that even further? Yeah. So you hit the nail on the head with regards to holding people back. It's a difficult issue to be able to address because I think the first point and, and the most important point that I would really kind of infuse into everyone's heads is this is not that old school methodology that you were thinking about when you took your MBA course as an example. And, and I've gone through some of these courses actually in preparation for the book. It's very, very interesting how we're looking at the human dynamics of communication. But the reality is that that's a 20th century model inside of a 21st century reality. The ability to be able to communicate very, very effectively and easily, I mean, exponential ease even the word. Someone told me a statistic that like two years ago, there were more photos taken than in all the years previous 
combined. Like we're talking about the level of communication that you can transmit is just insane. So the biggest thing that we tell people to do at the very beginning is start with process documentation. And if you've read eMyth and also Traction, EOS is really important on this, but we take it a step further. We basically, the first document that you write about three months into joining us as a company is a document that says how to do my job. So how to do Liam's job as the CMO of the company. We restrict it to about five pages. You can link out, obviously, to other resources. But then that creates that first crucial document, which is if I get hit by a bus, I have absolute and complete redundancy inside of that organization where that document can be shared with my direct reports and they can take over the responsibilities for that. But then inside of that, we really have, I call it the hierarchy of communication. So in-person versus video versus audio versus instant messaging versus email, and then actually versus project management. Tools like Asana, Notion, these are pretty popular project management tools to be able to implement. Your goal actually is to push as much of that communication down those rungs as much as humanly possible. So if I'm on my project management system, we use EOS actually inside of our organization, but we use an asynchronous version of EOS, which is every single week we meet the eight top executives in the company and we put down issues and we debate those issues on Asana. We put down our issue, our ticket, we debate it. Sometimes there's like 70, 80 comments in these issues. And then if we come to a conclusion, we actually take the conclusion, we put it to the top of ticket, and then we complete the ticket. So if there's less than three issues before a meeting, we don't have the meeting. We have a meeting about once a month. So the ones that actually stay up there, by the way, very interestingly enough, they are almost entirely due to EQ issues. They're due to Mikhail doesn't like Liam and he's got a problem with Liam and he thinks that he's an a-hole because of blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And those are usually the issues that we actually have to address. It's not the actual nuts and bolts of an organization. And if you look at any MBA book right now, basically the vast majority of management is simply just facilitating information to your higher ups, right? So I give you my numbers, you give your manager my numbers, and then that manager gives the boss my numbers. Inside of asynchronous organizations, we have another core tenant, which is radical transparency. So everyone in the company should have the same informational advantage as the CEO of the company. And that's very difficult for a lot of people to be able to take on, particularly the CEO. But when you join the company within the first three months, you'll get access to our P&Ls, you'll get access to all of our customers, how much money they generate, all of the process documents. There are no closed doors. Every single meeting is open. If it's closed, then there's a problem because we're not being honest in actually telling people, hey, there's an issue and this comes out of EOS as well. You should be as radically honest as you possibly can in order to be able to move the business forward. So those are just kind of a few of the pieces that kind of connects to asynchronous management. But what this basically creates is an environment in which the platform becomes the manager and not necessarily any single individual. And this is the key piece. If the platform then becomes the manager, meaning, oh, I don't know how to do X. Well, I should go inside of our process document and actually figure out how to do X. I shouldn't talk to John because John actually has work that he needs to do as well. He's in a state of deep work. And by interrupting him 
you think that you're solving your own problem, but in reality, on mass, what you're doing is you're creating an environment where there's all of these interruptions that occur and no one can actually get deep work done. I love the idea about the software and we don't use Asana. We use a offshoot of Asana Trello. I, I can't remember who owns who. One owns the other. Every time I tried to set it up myself, I failed horribly. Now with my new project manager, he's much better at it and he keeps everyone on check with that one. Now the radical transparency, I have to be honest with you, that was like a physical movement backwards <laughs> for me. Like I, like I revolted at that. I love my staff and I think that they're great. But I just don't know, as the CEO and founder of my company, whether I would be sharing every single detail about everything with my staff. So the only thing that we held back is information that that particular employee wouldn't necessarily want everyone else to know about. So that would be hiring and firings. So that's like HR, HR stuff, you mean? So HR really is a firewall. They're cordoned off from everyone else. But... I can give you an example where we made some serious cutbacks in one of our departments where we had to let quite a few people go. And the conversation on that was probably about two months. People saw it because the other part of this too is because everything is documented, including all of our meetings, you as an individual could come into our company and you could act as an archaeologist. So you could actually identify well, why did we make that decision two years ago to shut down that department? You could actually figure it out because you can go through our project management systems, our emails, all that kind of stuff and see that communication and why it necessarily occurred or didn't occur. Very useful, by the way, for um, due diligence if you ever want to sell your company. But when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, by empowering people to be able to have that transparency, it creates a lot more employee loyalty. So we personally have an EMPS score, which is employee net promoter score. It's just a way of measuring how happy people are, which you can use across any industry. We have an EMPS of 73. The average is 36. And the average EMPS score inside of asynchronous teams that we identified, again, it was a small end, it was 14 people, but still a pretty representative sample, is 70. And the two major reasons why they give for such a high EMPS score is the ability to be able to work wherever they want, whenever they want, the freedom to be able to basically just work however they want to work. And then also the radical transparency part, the ability to be able to have access to all of this information, because it not only creates an environment in which you feel trusted, but more importantly, when a difficult decision needs to be made, almost everyone actually realizes that that's the decision that needed to be made, including, by the way, when you made this cut, the people that were in that department. And they said, wow, we completely agree. This didn't work. Let me go find a job somewhere else. All right. What about things like corporate espionage, about intellectual property on any sensitive data? How can you have this level of transparency with those? Those are real things that every organization has to deal with. Absolutely. So I think we're actually now getting into the legal ramifications of remote work, which is another part of this, which I think is really important for people to understand, is if you are PCI, HIPAA, or SOC 2 compliant, you probably need a lot more security than you are currently implementing inside of your remote first organization. Number one, from a legal framework, it's really important. A lot of people are actually not working remotely legally, but from a securitization perspective, on our side, we all have these things, which are Titan keys. These are physical two-factor authentication tools so that we know that 
okay, when I plug this into my computer, I can't go into my email or anything else until I actually have this key plugged into my computer and I have to carry it with me. It's super annoying, but it makes sure that we're a lot more secure than we are. The other part of it too is making sure that there is documentation, which is well, where's the audit trail connected to you interacting with that information. If you interacted with, you know, let's say an R&D file, as an example, we keep all of that documentation in place, which is actually another tenant of asynchronous teams, which is incredibly detailed metrics. Because you can measure everything, we do measure everything. And then we create quantitative outcomes from that data, which then reinforces that the manager is not necessarily responsible for actually figuring out how well Johnny's doing. Johnny can actually figure it out himself and the platform basically provides him that information. But very important to be able to keep that in place. With all of that said, the vast majority of the time, people steal data, whether you're in an office or you're not. And that's the hard truth. Uh, a lot of people have asked me, oh, is it safe to be able to have remote workers? You know, maybe they steal data from us. And we have had people that have stolen from us. I can tell you a couple, <laughs> a couple doozies. <laughs> and you can't necessarily go after those people because they live in a different country. And, you know, let's say someone steals $50,000 from you, it's probably going to cost you $25,000 just to actually go after them from a legal perspective. So we don't necessarily do that. But at the end of the day, we create compartmentalizations of trust and make sure that we're ratcheting people up in those systems as quickly as possible. Well, okay. So that answers the question from the remote side of the equation, but not so much on the equation of the transparency. If you have everything transparent, if you have entry-level people that have access to your profit and loss statements and your balance sheet, like that for me would be a me and my accountant type of conversation only. Like that would not be anybody else. That wouldn't be my marketing department. That wouldn't be my website builder. It just wouldn't be. So I understand from like company vision or ethics or culture of the corporation. Absolutely, that should be shared with everybody. Everybody should have understanding of those types of things. I'm still trying to get my head around what advantage, or maybe even if there were some advantage versus the downside and the negativity and and the loss of privacy and control over these types of things. So the advantage is really, and it's very difficult to be able to quantify it unless you've done it already. And there are staged ways in which you can go about doing this. So as an example, we use a tool called ChartMogul inside of our SaaS product, which is basically, it gives us all of our customers, how much money they make us, whether they quit, whether they're expanding, contracting. And because of that, you can get all of the stereotypical software as a service metrics, churn, lifetime value, all those types of metrics. So within the first month, we give everyone access to that. And this was something that maybe about seven or eight years ago, we didn't do. And then when we flipped the switch and we decided to give it to like certain people that we, you know, we trusted and then, oh, okay, wow, they're much happier. And we sent it to some more people. Wow. They're so, and they were just blown away that they could get access to this information, effectively giving them the same informational advantage as the CEO of the company. And then when we gave it to everyone, that's when stuff went crazy. Our EMPS, I mean, we went from 50 to like 65 within one quarter. And when you quantify that in terms of retention metrics, that's easily to us, probably about $5 million worth of labor that we've saved that quarter. 
So I think about it from a dollars and cents perspective, which is there is obviously risk involved in this. And there's also the other side of it, which is if things are really bad, maybe your people end up jumping ship, right? If all of a sudden those P&Ls don't look very good, oh, very good. Like, oh man. Yeah, my job's not so secure. <laughs> Let's get out of here. But you know, we've even had those experiences as well, but because we've had this environment of radical transparency, they said, "You know what? We're in it. We're going down with the ship on and we haven't gone down obviously yet. And we're doing very well with regards to remote work, but it's just it's this very rare advantage that when employees are treated like adults, and equals, they then give that back just as much as we were giving it to them historically. One other caveat I'll also reinforce is this is really designed for us to be able to go after A players. So the most popular job on planet Earth, I don't know if you know what that is. That's very, when I looked it up, it blew me away. Tell me. Customer support reps. Oh, really? Customer support rep. Yeah, it's the most popular job on planet Earth is a customer support rep, right? Like customer service. Your average customer service rep is generally not an A player. You will find A players inside of that job category, but it's generally low-skilled work implemented by low-skilled labor. Any business owner will know that. And that's one of those things that we don't necessarily need to give that information to them because we're not necessarily doing this to retain those types of people. It's more the engineers, the VPs, the data scientists, the people that can basically get five jobs tomorrow if they really want to. And they'd say, I prefer to work here and for less money because I have more freedom and more flexibility to be able to work the way I want. Okay. Big announcement. We have launched Expat Money Summit. I am so excited. You know, this is something that I've wanted to do for several years now, but the timing was just never quite right. But now it is. Our team is growing. I think we've got about 10 people who are part of the Expat Money team now. So I've got a lot of support. I got a lot of help that's going to help me put this on. But this year's event is going to be absolutely massive. Like, I can't stress this enough. This event is going to be a complete game changer. Every other summit is going to pale in comparison to this one. Other companies are going to look at our summit as as a model on how to successfully run an offshore summit. We are going to eat everybody's lunch. It's going to be epic slash hilarious. You know why? Because the summit is free. Normally, people charge thousands of dollars for this types of information, but I thought, you know what? I want to put it out there for free to as many people as possible because the information is so necessary. I need people to get this stuff. I need to try to help as many people as possible. So what I ask in return is your support. What you can do is go to expatmoneysummit.com. You can get yourself a free ticket then share the shit out of this all over social media. If you have an email newsletter or if you have friends who might be interested in this stuff, then send it to them too. We got to get the word out. The goal here is 30,000 attendees. That's what I'm hoping for. It's a lofty goal. I won't lie with you. It's a lofty goal, but this summit is going to be unbelievable. It's going to be a complete game changer and we're going to help so many people. So I need your support. Go to expatmoneysummit.com, get yourself a free ticket and then share it with as many people as possible to raise awareness. We have so many amazing speakers from around the world. I think we have over 30 speakers at this point during our five-day conference. I'm so excited. That's all I can say. I'm just so, so excited. I hope you guys are too. I hope I can count on you for all of your support. expatmoneysummit.com. And yeah, let's do it. 
I just thought of another thing. Now, tell me if this fits in under the HR department. With the radical transparency, do everybody know what each other is making? Their salaries, their bonuses, their holidays, everything that's included, or that's part of the HR side? We personally do not do that, but in a lot of asynchronous organizations, they do. So they give everyone their salaries right up front. There's a fantastic one, actually, Buffer. So Buffer Open Salaries, if you just Google that, they not only gave it to their internal team, but they also gave it to everyone on the internet. <laughs> so they will know. So you you know when you join Buffer exactly how much money you make. This is too much for me. There's just no way. That's just so outside of what we stand for. Like, I mean, we deal so much with like privacy and anonymity and things like this. Like I just... Yeah. And I, I think the obviously the your clients that you work with, you should not disclose that type of information under any circumstances whatsoever. No, I would, that would have legal ramifications for sure. But I mean, for my employees, I mean, that's still just... So I'll give you another example is another company that we studied for the book called GitLab, which is basically a software repository. So you can basically put code there and you can share it with other people. Uh, and it's kind of a project management system as well. And they open source so much of their stuff. They have such a high degree of radical transparency that they ended up sponsoring our conference a few years ago. And if you simply type in running remote GitLab sponsorship, they have all of the emails that we sent back and forth <laughs> on the negotiation for the sponsorship. Everything inside of their organization is open to everyone else inside of the organization. And as much as they can make public, they make public, including even the emails that they send out inside of the company. So it's a very different model. But GitLab, I think it's got a $20 billion valuation. They went public last year. They're doing very, very well. They're actually doing better than GitHub, which is another remote company, but doesn't practice asynchronous management. And it effectively allows for everyone to be autonomous nodes inside of the organization because they don't necessarily need managers in order to be able to figure out what to do next because they have everything at their availability to be able to actually accomplish the tasks that they need inside of the company. Okay. So this is one of the tools in the toolbox. I think that it's it's very interesting. I will be very upfront. I'm certainly not sold on this radical transparency, but I want to know what are some of the other tools in the toolbox that have really helped what you've seen with your company, helping other companies with remote work. What are some other tools in the toolbox? Sure. So another big one is deliberate over communication. So the ability to be able to communicate asynchronously is basically going to reduce you to text forms of communication and to something like a Loom video, if you've ever used Loom before. So a video product where you can kind of grab the screen and communicate, hey, I want this pixel moved there. Or you can make a video just like I'm doing right now where I can actually do an address of everyone in the company and I can make a video beforehand instead of actually doing it in a live AMA, which we used to do. Okay, so pause on that one because that's a cool idea. So it would be kind of like a watch party. You would do a presentation as the CEO and then it would get broadcasted out on Zoom like a watch party or explain that a little bit. Yeah, so it literally we create an unlisted YouTube video and sometimes we actually secure it behind more important video platforms. But you take that video, 
you give it to everyone inside of your organization. And the reason why I would suggest that people start with YouTube is because it has amazing analytics. So what we do is we measure how many employees watch the video. How long did they watch the video for? And that's actually my outcome variable. That's how I'm measured as the person that's producing the video. So it shouldn't be a, I don't know if you've, you probably haven't had this experience, but a lot of people during the pandemic, unfortunately had what I called culture at gunpoint. So it was like, all right, we're all going to get on Zoom Friday night and your beer is going to get FedEx to you. And we're going to play Cards Against Humanity, but the HR friendly version, not the actual fun version, because that's our team building and everyone is forced to be there. I think that's called apples to apples, that version. (laughs) So asynchronous organizations say, listen, we're going to create content that we hope that you're inspired by. At least that's the way that we do it in a lot of other asynchronous organizations as well. And it's our job as an organization to be able to inspire you. Because really, at the end of the day, asynchronous teams are not about the people inside of an organization. It's about the work that you do. So what's the dent in the universe that you really want to make? Really focusing, and this is perfectly connected, by the way, to EOS, is our entrepreneur operating system, traction, and everything else that you spoke about before. It's that vision that aligns everyone to say, yeah, I'm really excited about working in this company because I think we're doing something that I really believe in. And therefore, I'm going to watch the weekly address as an example from Liam because he puts out really good stuff that's informative and exciting. And it's going to give me a little bit of a jump for the rest of the day. So that's what we really communicate is make sure that we're over-communicating, communicating in the right ways, and then also communicating in a way that's not necessarily wasting people's time. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I go into a meeting, right, at a board meeting, and I'm sitting with eight other people, and two of them are talking for 45 minutes, I mean, I always end up getting a text message from somebody saying like, wow, this is so incredibly boring, right? Like all of those people are wasting their time. And the vast majority of those times, those are six-figure employees that could be focusing on deep work. I think I'm going to be replacing my Monday morning meeting. This sounds good. This one I like. This one I'm very fond of. I like the idea of the delisted YouTube video. I put out what I need to say. All right, you guys watch it in your own time. I've got one employee. I swear he works at four o'clock in the morning. It's perfect. I mean, he gets the stuff done. I wake up in the morning. It's all done. If he wants to watch things at that time, then great. Opposed to making everybody get up at nine o'clock first thing in the morning every Monday to have our weekly meeting. I could see this one. Why would you do that? Yeah. So the other thing that is really important to note about asynchronous management is I think we're going to see the rise of the introverted leader. So I'm very introverted. I can't necessarily address large groups of people. And also in debates, I'm not very good. I ended up having one of those issues actually at the conference where I was thrown up on stage because there was no one else left to actually go up on stage and didn't end up going very well for me. But what I am really good at is actually thinking about what I want to say, writing it down, putting it up on this teleprompter that I'm staring at right now, and then communicating that message and communicating my honest excitement for whatever you know I put on the page. And that's the reality of asynchronous leadership is you don't necessarily have to be the white six foot two Captain America looking guy that's always got the right answers to everything. I hate that guy because that guy (laughs) beat me up in high school. But for me, you know, I can be the guy that's like, you know what? I can think about that. And I can actually sit down 
and conceptualize what message I want to send to everyone inside of the organization to be able to get them excited about what they're doing and showing them that their work is meaningful and doing things that's changing the world in a positive way. That is a very, very exciting thing because a very small percentage of the population actually has that capability to do it off the cuff. And with asynchronous work, the other 80% of the population can finally get into the game. Well, I think this is really important because anytime you can identify what your strong parts are in a business, the things that you can do that nobody else can do, I think just focusing on that and trying to get I mean, either automating it with software, having other people do it, empowering other people to do it, which is really what I hear you saying, is getting out of their way and letting people focus on their own strengths. And just you do you, you do your thing. I mean, I write and I speak. Those are my core competencies. I write and I speak. You know, I don't want to build websites. I don't want to do graphic design. I don't want to do 99 and 0.9% of the things that are out there for my business. And I just look for software and opportunities that someone else can do it. And my plate is clear. I spend six hours a day on Zoom, but not necessarily with my staff. I spend six hours a day creating content because my main business is, yeah, well, creating content and I work as a consultant. So I work one-on-one with high net worth individuals and I help them through problems. And I love it. I get a massive kick out of it. It's so much fun. And it's like an itch that has to be scratched. You know, I just like this type of thing. And I like communicating and brainstorming and being creative and finding solutions to really complex problems in the tax and legal and immigration side. Running the Monday morning meeting is certainly not my favorite point. Trying to figure out who should be involved in the team and how it should be put together. And the worst is following up with people and making sure that people are doing their job. Oh, that's the worst. The worst. That's the worst. And here's the thing is it's 2022. Yeah. You don't have to do that anymore. There's a piece of software that will actually do it for you. And not only that, they'll do it better than you could ever do it. I don't think that that's a stretch for any <laughs> any stretch of the imagination because I suck at this. I find it so frustrating. And this is actually, by the way, one of the big reasons why there's been a backlash towards remote work and a lot of people going back to the office is, and I've kept a very open mind about this. I'm definitely on the side of remote work, but I'm a lot more pragmatic than anyone would probably give me opportunity for. And when I've spoken to these middle managers, I said, okay, yeah, you want to have everyone go back to the office, but why, why, why? I use a very Socratic method. And really at the end of the day, I think they've recognized that they are effectively redundant in this process. They're a horse. It's 1915 and the first Model T is rolled off the production line. And they can go and do something more exciting. As I had said before, in asynchronous remote teams, way more people actually work on problems than there are people managing people working on hard problems, which creates a better run organization and a more competitive organization. I really think we're at an inflection point here where we're going to say, okay, we're going to have more people working on these difficult problems and we don't have the choice to be able to go back to an office because it's just a more inefficient way of actually facilitating information and solving hard issues. So when I speak to these middle managers, they really just want to fight the coming tide. And that's very unfortunate because I think now is the time, if you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, you know, maybe this works, maybe this doesn't work. 
if it does work and you're a manager, you really need to be able to get good at doing something as opposed to managing people who are doing things. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of EOS that's thrown in, but really like 2.0, EOS for 2022 and beyond. Hmm. So like, what kind of pushback do you get from people? Like, what, what are the things that they go, oh, this doesn't work because of A, B, and C? Like, could, I could imagine someone saying, oh, you know, there's this creativity that only happens if you're face-to-face for someone. What about that? What about other things in that type of vein? So my dream is to have a thousand companies that start at the same time. 500 of them are synchronous and 500 of them are asynchronous. I believe, this is my theory, is that the 500 that start synchronous will probably be able to conceptualize their ideas faster. So, you know, you got a small team, you're a startup, you think to yourself, okay, I'm going to come up with this concept. And I think they'll be able to get to the concept faster than the asynchronous organization. However, asynchronous completely obliterates synchronous when it comes to scale. We have a problem, we solved the problem, we built a product or service around that particular issue. Now what we need to do is scale that process. That's where asynchronous really kicks into high gear because instead of my VP of sales training three salespeople, my VP of sales can build process documentation that can train a hundred of them at the same time because the platform is the manager. From the collaborative perspective, I completely agree having that in person. And just because, as an example, just because we are an asynchronous organization doesn't necessarily mean that we don't meet in person or meet synchronously. When we choose to meet synchronously, we try to have that as high fidelity form of communication as humanly possible. So what does that mean? It means I actually just did one of our quarterly team retreats with our VPs and it was eight people. We all met in the same room for two days. And that's where we interacted and built rapport and trust effectively between the two of us. But to your point, the other pushbacks that we get is with regards to deliberate over-communication, they really say to themselves, oh, well, I need an answer on something now. Inside of asynchronous organizations, there's no immediacy. We try to ban immediacy from the organization. Oh, well, I need an answer on this right now. Because then that what that does is, particularly if you're the business owner and you're saying that to the people that report to you, well, they drop everything and they actually get what you need done as opposed to what the organization needs done. And that's a really important point to be able to, to push on. The next one is really democratized workflows, process documentation. People don't do it. A lot of people talk about how they have process documentation, but then when I actually look at it, they don't, unfortunately. Start with that single document, how to do my job. That's a really good first step. But long-term, there should effectively be no answer that your documentation can't answer. And if they can't answer it, then you need to write that documentation. There's a bunch of different kind of details kind of connected to that. And then the third one, which is actually uh, very difficult for people to overcome, is detailed metrics. So the ability to be able to measure everything inside of an organization is really important to the success of that organization. And to me, when people look at detailed metrics, they say, oh, well, I don't want this level of CRM, or I don't want any time tracking, or I don't want a project management system, or I don't want to be able to be you know, predefined by my EMPS score or how many people watched my YouTube video. I thought I made a great YouTube video. Well, the data would suggest otherwise, <laughs> right? It's just the hard reality of the market. In this case, I would call it our internal market, which is I make YouTube videos and information to be able to 
excite people internally just as much as externally. And if those people aren't excited about it, then I'm quite possibly the wrong person for the job or I'm not doing my job properly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what do you find is the sweet spot for organizational size then? Like one to 10 is okay, fine going synchronous. And then once you get to a certain place where that's really the sweet spot when you transition. So first off, anyone that is below the Dunbar number. So a Dunbar number is a sociologist named Dunbar. I don't know his backstory, to be honest with you, but it's a very clear sociological rule, social fact, is that you only can really have about 100 to 150 friends. And the definition of a friend is if you saw them at a bar or a restaurant, you would go over to them and sit down and have a drink with them, right? That's Dunbar's definition. So you can only have about 150 of those, max. Once you're past the 150 people Dunbar number, unfortunately, no matter how much you love the people that work inside of your company, they cease to become people and they start to become numbers. So you need to be able to actually optimize for that and recognize that you will no longer, like there are people in the company that don't know me, that never met me before, that still work in the company and they, and they work just fine because they accomplish a particular task inside of the organization. Uh, I'm sure they're really great people, but I don't really know them. And if I saw them at a restaurant, I wouldn't know who the heck they are, that type of a thing. So it's really important to be able to optimize for that Dunbar number. And I would say any organization that wants to truly scale past the Dunbar number, asynchronous management is the methodology for them. And by the way, asynchronous management can be deployed inside of an office as well. Right. I don't know if you've seen all of these crazy stories of people going back to the office. They're forced back to the office, quote unquote, and they can't actually meet in a boardroom. They all have to do Zoom on their own computers. <laughs> and this is like a trend that is happening everywhere. Because people are afraid of getting COVID. Because they're afraid of getting COVID. Yeah. So to me, I'm thinking, why do we have this office in the first place? Yeah. Sounds like expensive overhead. <laughs> Exactly. So it's really important to be able to kind of just make sure that you're mindful of those types of faux pas, particularly going back to the office about why are we actually doing this. But outside of that, having everybody really aligned towards their core goals is another piece that I think like EOS does this very, very well. But, and obviously what I'm suggesting as well inside of asynchronous management has the vision of the company at its core, because when you have less connection with individuals inside of the organization, it's really important to be able to have people to hold on to the vision. And it is, by the way, the number one stickiest thing, particularly inside of the two or three studies that we referenced in the book that connect to primarily the tech industry, but they identified that people organizations that had a very strong vision towards what they wanted to do were the organizations that ended up succeeding in retaining their talent and solving those difficult problems way above people that had actually more interpersonal culture. So I like the people that work inside of the company. That is a really important factor. I wouldn't necessarily discount it, but when you're talking about remote teams, strong vision is absolutely the most important thing to be able to make your organization succeed. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Definitely, definitely. To hone in just a tiny bit more on the numbers of the employees. So do you still think that there is advantage for smaller organizations to go this direction or to start as this because they know in the future the organization will scale? 
So it was a forcing function. Generally, asynchronous management grew out of the forcing function of remote first organizations that were located in multiple different countries from day one. And they said to themselves, okay, well, there's someone who's on the other side of the planet. And when I want to talk to everybody at 3 p.m., it's 3 a.m. for them. So we need to build methodologies and systems in order to be able to account for everyone, regardless of time zone. So that's how it really kind of started. It's very difficult for me to, because there's probably about two to 3,000 asynchronous companies on planet Earth right now. They are, by the way, some of the largest companies in the world, but there's not many of them. And I would say from the one to 10 range, if you can, if you're two co-founders and you're working on a SaaS product, as an example, I would be as synchronous as you possibly can in that moment. But that would probably be month one to six (laughs) of the company. You've got an idea. You're going to test that assumption in the market. Maybe you have an engineer and that engineer is going to work with you. I would say above 10 people, you can continue down the synchronous rabbit hole. But unfortunately, what it's going to create is your culture is going to start to crystallize around the ability to be able to get information from people in person. And you think that that's speeding you up. And it is in the short term, but it's actually going to significantly slow you down in the long term because you're going to have to completely reinvent the company. I'm actually doing this right now with a bunch of other companies that are trying to transition from synchronous to asynchronous. And this is the big piece that they're coming up against, which is generally the managers and the executives inside of the company having this culture of immediacy and the direct reports stating But remember, we paid for all this consulting from Liam and Liam is saying (laughs) that you don't need that in the next two minutes. You need it. When do you need it? You know, when's a reasonable amount of time in order to be able to do it? That's like the biggest thing that's really been pushing back is it has to start at the top. But I would say one to 10 synchronous first six months synchronous if you had to. And then after that, switch to an asynchronous model. It's really going to allow you to be able to get to that scale point like Shopify and Coinbase and GitLab and Todoist and all the other companies that I looked at for the book. Amazing. Well, the book sounds amazing. When is it coming out? It's coming out August 16th on Amazon and everything else, even though Amazon is like what 95% of the sales. Don't tell any Barnes and Noble that, but... It's all 95% on Amazon, so you can go check it out there. And if you just type in running remote, you'll be able to find it. Fantastic. We're getting close to the end of our time together today, but I do want to spend a bit of time and hear about your experience this year for running the conference. I mean, must have been a lot of changes doing an in-person event after what we've just been through for the last two years. So how did it go? I will never do a conference ever again during COVID. (laughs) Like I'm putting it in virtual pen and ink. It was easily one of the most stressful experiences of the last three years of my life. And I was very stressed out the last three years of my life. Yeah. So logistically, about six months into the conference, people were saying, you know, you're requiring masks at the conference because we had the conference in Canada. And at that point, masks were required. I'm not going to come. I want a refund, right? So if you want to get actually very specific about it, we lost about 86 tickets that way. Then we ended up removing masks. Good. Let me just chime in before you finish your story. Good. 
no masks good. Non-political statement, whether you want to wear a mask or don't want to wear a mask, it's totally up to you. Non-political statement, but four days before the conference started, they removed masks. And then we had a further 45 people that asked for a refund because they now would not require masks in order to be able to attend the conference. So it was a unfortunate reality of the politicization of that little piece of fabric. We did require that everyone be vaccinated when they go to the conference under the law here. When you come to Canada, you actually need to be vaccinated or you go through a 14-day quarantine. So we recognized, well, we're just going to go with vaccination for everybody, which we did get some resistance towards as well. We ended up having about 12 people that said, I'm not vaccinated and I don't want to be vaccinated. So therefore, I'm not going to come to the conference. You can hear like the, the cha-ching machine, like all of the money that we're losing, right, from that extra variable. And then 48 hours before the conference started, we lost six speakers because they tested positive for COVID. And that was another short-term extra kind of wrench in the works that I would not necessarily wish on my worst enemy. One of our title speakers who runs a very large company, uh, well, it's Zoom, right? So one of our title speakers, he's the CIO of Zoom. It was a really important interview for us. And we had a woman from the Globe and Mail or the BBC, I believe, that was going to actually do the interview. She ended up testing positive for COVID. And when you do try to do an interview with someone like that, it's like you have two assistants plus a PR rep plus the lawyer on every single prep call, right? So all of a sudden you say, oh, well, you're going to get interviewed by someone completely different. The lawyer says, what? <laughs> <laughs> right? So those are just examples of things that add an extra layer of stress to the experience that should really be a lot more exciting. But the people that did end up coming, which was a lot actually for us, they loved the conference. They loved being able to get back to in-person communication, even though I am talking about asynchronous management, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be in person, (laughs) right? Like people meet in person all the time. We are company Once a year, we fly everyone into one particular location for five days. It's kind of like a mini conference about the company. And people love it. They feel energized about it. You build more trust. You build more loyalty across the team. And that's a piece that I think everyone needs to be able to get back to. Because the last two and a half years, we've been doing work from home, which is really not remote work. It is There's a scary virus outside that may or may not kill me. And I'm stuck in my house with people that hopefully you like, and I can't go to the grocery store, I can't go to a restaurant. And thankfully, we're out of that. I think we're going to see the silver lining left behind is that remote work is now going to become at least 30% of the US workforce, where it was 4% before, which I'm very excited about. But I think everyone needs to kind of just calm down. We're back to a point now where you don't necessarily need those masks. If you're vaccinated, And even if you're not, to be honest with you, you're going to be very successful moving forward. And yeah, I I just, I hope that the world gets back to normal because I feel we're in a place right now where we're more divisive than ever before. And I think COVID unfortunately added an accelerator to that. Definitely. I mean, I've never seen the world like it is right now and so much uncertainty and chaos going on. I mean, I'm a very optimistic, upbeat, happy kind of guy. I mean, I deal with 
negative situations all the time. We're looking at asset protection and wealth protection and how to protect the downside. But at the end of the day, I love my life. I want to be out there traveling. I want to be out there exploring the world. The show is about freedom. It's about how to have more freedom in your life, whatever that might be for you. But I mean, if you want to work remote and be down on the beach in Panama or in Mexico or traveling through Europe in Portugal, like these are amazing strategies to actually make things happen on your own terms. I mean, especially from the asynchronous side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel it's so exciting where we're at right now. I think that the call it the digital nomad class, even though I think we're actually going through transition. I think like version one of digital nomads were assuming probably the majority of your listeners know what a digital nomad is. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) No problem on that one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming so. Sometimes I have to explain it, but digital nomad 1.0 was mostly engineers and high paid workers that were working remotely. And the average salary of digital nomad, I think was like 160,000 US. Version two of digital nomadism was the Instagram model digital nomad that their average salary was actually $15,000. Huge change. And now as we've moved post COVID, there was one really interesting report that said that we went from 5 million to 50 million digital nomads. I think we're actually going to go to a quarter of a billion digital nomads. And the third stage for me is the rich, dumb nomad. Get an email or a message almost every day from someone that will ask me, well, how much does it actually cost to be able to have a place in Bali? Oh, well, it's about $2,000. You can get a four bedroom place per month with a pool. And I'll get response back like, I'm paying $11,000 in San Francisco right now. And I work for Twitter, you know, for $450,000 a year. And now that Twitter's remote, I mean, Elon might be changing that over the next month or two, but they can now go to those places and they can truly work remotely. And I think that it's going to produce the rise of this cosmopolitan class that's going to recognize that it's just knowledge right now. It's your ability to be able to, to generate income is going to be the big divisive issue. And you don't necessarily need to be in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Toronto, any of these types of places anymore, which honestly aren't that fun in the grand scheme of things. I think that cities are going to cease to be places to work and they're going to become places to live. And that's a really exciting concept for me because the amazing places where people can live, historically, the vast majority of work opportunities were not open to them. Well, I think the clincher is the asynchronous part of this because, okay, so my main is helping people leave the United States and Canada. We deal with the tax issues, the immigration. This is what I said before. But most people were moving them north to south. And that's because they work remote, but they still have to spend hours every day on Zoom and they have meetings and things like that. No one, not no one, but I mean, 98% of them of my clients that I help are north to south. They're not east to west. We're not moving people to Thailand or Bali or something like that. When I lived in the UAE for eight years, I had to start client calls and start working at like 5, 6 p.m. And I would work until 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, which was fine when I was a single guy or when I was newly married. But when my wife and I had children and my daughter is waking up at 6, 6.30 in the morning and we got to be quiet because daddy needs to sleep until 2 p.m., 
that doesn't work, you know? So I had to come back to Eastern Standard Time or even Central Time, somewhere around that. So it's just one or two hours difference. But there's no way being out in the Middle East or being in Thailand or something like that was going to work for me. Now, if you can structure the organization in the way that you've been describing today, where things are not immediate, where you have ways of communicating, where things still get done and you empower people to get them done, but on their own time and on their own time zone, that's a game changer. You know, case in point that ties these two pieces together is I've been looking at buying a property in Istanbul because for $250,000, you can actually get a passport and your wife and children can get passports as well. It's a pretty good deal. So I was interacting with this attorney, this Turkish attorney, and he always wanted to jump on phone calls. Like the guy would call me and I really had to have a bit of an intervention with him. And I said, so you don't need to call me for basically anything. <laughs> like, tell me what I need to fill out. I will send you that information. And if you want, we can use a project management system so that we can make sure that everything is synced up properly. And he actually emailed me back last week and he was like, this is the least stressful client interaction that I've had because I'm literally just an input-output device, right? And obviously you need to build rapport with clients and all that kind of stuff. But if you've sold me, right? Like I'm going to pay for it. I just want as few problems as humanly possible. And if there are issues, then you move up the chain. You move up to a synchronous form of communication. But very rarely are those problems actually something that requires immediacy. And that's the piece that I think a lot of people still don't get because they're still stuck in the office mindset. I don't know if your lawyer told you, but it has changed to $400,000 in real estate in Turkey for citizenship. So you might need to be buying a couple of more apartments over there. Yeah. So he told me about that as well. But this was something that I did about a month and a half ago. Okay. Yeah. If not, question it. I do Turkish citizenship by investment for tons of my clients. So we've been following this one extremely closely and I'm even heading over there next month myself for some client work. So, yeah. Yeah, I feel that that's another piece of this too is once you have this framework in place where you're out of the office, you're no longer necessarily connected to the office. Number one, you can travel the world. I think it's probably the number one most important thing to make you not an a-hole. I don't know if I can swear probably on your podcast. You can but definitely like, swear on my podcast, but yes, thank I you. agree. <laughs> yes, so like, it's, it makes you such a much more interesting person when you can travel. And I've been doing this for 20 years, right? So I was doing it way before COVID. I've gained so much depth to who I am as a person. You know, we're both Canadian, the average Canadian, relatively one-dimensional person, right? Nothing necessarily against that, but the depth that you gain from saying, I'm going to spend three months in Cairo as an example and learn how Egyptians live, or I'm going to go down to South Africa for six months and check that out. Or I'm going to go to Mexico and live on the East Coast for three to four months. It gives you so much depth that I think it absolutely has a fantastic ROI into your business, but it also has a fantastic ROI in your personal relationships and your own identity as an individual. So we've been given such a, if you can call it a silver lining, such a huge opportunity with COVID where everyone's now gotten a taste of remote work. And before the people that you maybe would want to hire would be quite scared about remote work. Now, almost everyone on planet earth has at least tried remote work once. And so it just opens up your opportunities to be able to build that organization. But it's really important to not have your company 
turn into golden handcuffs, right? The thing that's going to hold you back from doing what you really want to do with your life. Uh, I know that I'm kind of preaching to the choir on this one, but it's so important. No, amen. You said it better than I can say it myself. I love it. Liam, brilliant conversation today. Very, very interesting. I'm excited to learn more about what you do. If my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to find out about your company or pick up the book, where can we send them? So first off, you can't get in touch with me in person because I'm really focused on deep work and asynchronous management. Even when it came out of my uh, mouth, I'm going, this is hilarious. You know, if people want to give you a call, where can they? No, just kidding. It's it's $8,000 an hour and I'm happy to take anyone's phone call. But yeah, so if you want to go check out timedoctor.com or staff.com, there's a SaaS products that I founded and go to runningremote.com slash book for the book get it on Amazon as well. But if you go to that URL, you're actually going to get all of the process documents that we have built internally inside of our own organization and all of the, this is how you do Liam's job type of documents. So it really gives you a good beginning stake in building out those process documents. So at least you have something in place, that framework to be able to hopefully go a little bit more asynchronous and free yourself from the drudgery of synchronous communication, which I like to call interruption factors. Brilliant. Liam, I love the conversation. Thanks so much for your time. And I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks for having me. Okay. What an amazing interview today. I hope you guys got a lot of knowledge, a lot of inspiration, and really learned something new. If you guys have kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews or neighbors or anybody who is not agreeing with what's happening in the school systems today, if they have a international flavor, if they are digital nomads or want to be digital nomads, if they're expats or international families, homeschooling, world schooling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then I want you guys to check out our brand new program and expat school .io. That's right, expatschool.io. This is an amazing program that I've built with my very good friend, Michael Strong. He was actually a guest on episode 115 of the podcast back, what's that, a year or so ago, and we've been working hard since we met to build this school. He has a background in education. He's actually been doing curriculum design for over 30 years for Montessori programs, and he's a published author, and his experience in education is just unbelievable. So I think that I really chose the best partner possible on planet Earth for this. The full name of the school is Expat International School of Freedom and Entrepreneurship. So we're going to have a strong emphasis on programs and skills and abilities that will actually enable your child to build something, to be creative, to use their hands, to add value to the world, which is really what this show is all about. There's going to be second languages. There's going to be things like blockchain technology. I mean, actually get your kids prepared for what's happening in the world. You're going to give them a massive advantage over every other family out there. So as you can see, I am really excited about this. I hope you guys get a chance to take a look. It's at expatschool.io. You can sign up for our free newsletter to make sure that you stay in touch with us and hear about all the new news. And if it makes sense for your kids, if you have kids that are between the ages of 8 to 19, then schedule a call with us. We'll all sit down and go through the program and see if it makes sense for you and your family. That's it. Go to expatschool.io, and I will see you next Wednesday on the podcast. Have a great week.
This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.